0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Your Brain on Facts book, available now. Want the facts without my voice? Get the Your Brain on Facts book. But if you want my voice without the facts, I am available for hire for voiceover work. No job too small, and my listeners get 50% off. Email me at moxie at yourbrainonfacts.com. Popular music is veritably littered with songs getting back at someone, from Waylon Jennings to Taylor Swift. The best-known revenge song is probably Carly Simon's You're So Vain, which has led to decades of speculation as to who the song was about and why. Could it be ex-lover Warren Beatty or Chris Christopherson, alleged fling Sean Connery, or occasional duet partner Mick Jagger? Breakup songs aside, a fair number of the tracks you know by heart are actually clapbacks, not to former lovers, but to the people in the mixing booth or the boardroom. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. A microphone is a good enough platform for getting back at someone, but an entire recording studio is even better. And when I said, songs you know, by heart, I mean by Anne and Nancy Wilson, rock and roll's sisters of awesomeness. Their hit Barracuda, which somehow failed to crack the Billboard Top 10 when it was released in 1977, isn't about the Plymouth fastback muscle car, or even the sleek and toothy underwater killing machines. With arguably one of the greatest opening riffs in classic rock, Barracuda was written by Anne and Nancy Wilson together with guitarist Roger Fisher and drummer Michael DeRosier. It was written at a time when there was friction between the band and their label, to put things mildly. The song appears on the album Little Queen, their first album with CBS Portrait Records. They'd left their old label Mushroom Records after a contract dispute and Mushroom was none too happy. Because according to Mushroom, Hart owed them a second album. They not only sued the band for breach of contract and to try to block the release of the CBS album, but released Magazine, an album made up of songs that Hart had recorded but didn't think were good enough to release, as well as some live recordings needed to get it up to album length. The dispute dragged on, and eventually the court decided that Hart was free to sign with a new label, but Mushroom was indeed owed a second album. So Hart went back to the studio to re-record, remix, edit, and resequence the magazine recordings in a marathon session over four days. A court-ordered guard actually stood nearby to make sure the master tapes weren't being erased. Hart eventually came out on top as not only did the album Little Queen outsell magazine by a wide margin, the debacle gave the band the distinction of having all three of their albums on the charts at the same time. The court case wasn't the only reason the Wilson sisters and company were mad at Mushroom Records. After the first album became a million seller, Mushroom took out a full-page ad in Rolling Stone touting the band's success using the headline, Million to One Shot Sells a Million. No problem so far. The ad looked like the front page of a tabloid newspaper and included a photo from the Dreamboat Annie album cover shoot. The caption read, Harts Wilson sisters confess, it was only our first time, implying the sisters had an incestuous lesbian affair. Shortly after this ad appeared, a Detroit radio promoter asked Ann Wilson where her lover was. She assumed he meant her then-boyfriend, band manager Michael Fisher. But when the reporter clarified he was referring to her sister Nancy, Ann was, understandably, outraged and retreated to her hotel room to write. When she relayed the incident to Nancy, she, too, was outraged and joined Ann in the writing session, contributing a melody and a bridge. Nancy put suitably angry music to the word to complete the song comparing the sleazy side of the music biz to a dangerous eel-like fish. The song became an enduring classic, and Barracuda remains one of the band's signature songs. Barracuda was attached to another incident of severe irritation for the Wilson sisters at Al, again in 2008. During that year's presidential campaign, the song was used as the unofficial theme song for Republican vice president nominee Sarah Palin. The Alaskan governor had apparently earned the nickname Sarah Barracuda as a high school basketball player for her competitive nature. The day after the song was played at the national convention, Anne and Nancy Wilson issued a statement reading, "'The Republican campaign did not ask for permission to use the song, nor would they have been granted that permission.' We have asked the Republican campaign publicly not to use our music. We hope our wishes will be honored." Their wishes were not honored. As the Republican campaign pointed out, they had obtained the proper performance rights to the song from the record label and were under no obligation to get any further permission to use it, the bar for performance rights being somewhat lower than the bar for commercial or video rights. With no legal recourse, The Wilson sisters retaliated in the media, telling Entertainment Weekly, Sarah Palin's views and values in no way represent us as American women. We ask that our song Barracuda no longer be used to promote her image. The song Barracuda was written in the late 70s as a scathing rant against the soulless corporate nature of the music business, particularly for women. While Hart did not and would not authorize the use of their song at the RNC, there's irony in Republican strategists' choice to make use of it there. The song's co-writer, Roger Fisher, was also anti-Palin, but he saw things differently, telling Reuters he was thrilled that the song was being used as it was a win-win situation. He explained that while Hart gets publicity and royalties, the Republicans benefit from the ingenious placement of a kick-ass song. He added that he would use some of the proceeds in a donation to the Obama campaign, and thus the Republicans are now supporting Obama. See, kids, there's always a silver lining if we look for it. The inimitable, late-great Freddie Mercury of Queen penned another musical hate letter, though this one is better known to fans who owned the album A Night at the Opera which this reporter should still have on vinyl around here somewhere, as the song Death on Two Legs was never released as a single and didn't really get radio play. This track was dedicated to Norman Sheffield, Queen's former manager and co-owner of Trident Studios. Mercury himself described the lyrics as, quote, so vindictive that Brian May, guitarist and backup vocals, felt bad singing it. It opens with the line all my money. And, you want more. and had lyrics like was the fin on your back part of the deal, shark, and you're a sewer rat decaying in a cesspool of pride. Nice. The surviving band members noted the unhappy atmosphere in the Days of Our Lives documentary, explaining that they felt they were being done wrong by the label, as they kept producing hit single after hit single without really seeing any money coming their way. By way of example, at one point, Roger Taylor was told that he shouldn't hit the drums too hard as they couldn't afford new drumsticks. But as Taylor noted... You see the management running around in stretch limos and think, hang on, something's not right here. The band's split from Trident Studios was unsurprisingly acrimonious, and this song acted as something as a final word from the band, the oral equivalent of the British two-finger salute. As it appears on the album, the song has dedicated to... after the title. Even though the song doesn't use his name or any overtly identifying characteristics, Sheffield tried to sue for defamation of character. This was a bit of a miscalculation on his part, as by doing so, he effectively admitted there was cause for them to dedicate this song to him. The parties eventually reached an out-of-court settlement. But, y'all, I googled for, like, an hour and I couldn't find any specifics outside of the fact that Queen was the one doing the paying. If you happen to know more about this situation, by all means, at me on the social medias, Facebook and Instagram, slash your brain on Facts and Twitter at brainonfactspod. Now, Queen's next manager, John Reed, spent a lot of his initial time working with the band, clearing up their finances and resolving bad deals they had gotten into. In his autobiography published in 2013, Life on Two Legs Set the Record Straight, Sheffield denied that he had mistreated the band in his capacity as manager and cited the original 1972 management contracts, which he included in the book, in his defense. He named his autobiography after their song. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The music industry can be a harsh mistress. Record executives not only tell you how to live in the present day, they make up a punchier past for you, altering your history to help them sell more records. And once you're no longer laying golden eggs, your goose is cooked. At least, that's how the members of Pink Floyd felt. While the album title Wish You Were Here and the song title Welcome to the Machine may have been Statements, their recording actually asked a question. What is the true cost of fame? The story of the album is in no small part also the story of founding member Sid Barrett. Barrett was the band's original lead guitar and vocalist, but in the late 1960s, dove headlong into heavy LSD use. His behavior became erratic and unpredictable, leading people to speculate now that he may have been self-medicating schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. As his hold on reality became increasingly tenuous, the band finally made the painful decision to replace him, bringing on David Gilmour. Barrett's deterioration was the impetus behind one of the band's most enduring hits, Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. If the title is written on three lines, you'll see the acronym SIT, Barrett visited the band once in the studio, at that point virtually unrecognizable to his former bandmates. It was the last time any of them would see him alive. Shine On bookends the album, dominated by a four-note guitar theme that Roger Waters thought sounded like Barrett's lingering ghost. Shine On contains the lyrics... They blamed the music industry specifically for Barrett's decline. This can be seen again in the song, Have a Cigar, with the famous line, Oh, by the way, which one's pink? The lyrics are one half of a conversation between a record exec and the musicians he's trying to woo with fame and fortune, without bothering to know the first thing about them. The same sentiment makes up Welcome to the Machine. It tells the story of a record exec talking to a musician without caring in the slightest about them as a person, creating a marketable backstory, something they can sell. The execs even write the creative's future. What did you dream? It's all right. We told you what to dream. The song is full of ominous tones and mechanical sounds, reflecting the cold and inhuman nature of the industry. Pink Floyd carried this message through to the album art. The front cover shows two men shaking hands in a business deal, with one of them on fire, ostensibly, literally being burned in the deal. On the back cover, a faceless businessman stands in a barren desert. If you've just been reminded how much you like the song Welcome to the Machine, or you want to check it out for the first time, also check out the cover by the band Pinwheel, do not listen to the Queen's Right cover. Just don't. Trust me. The Shadow's Fall version is pretty good, too. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds, like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and relax Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, Join me, Katie Charlewood, history harlot, and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir, de zen, my friends. Bye bye. I'll be seeing you. At the same time Pink Floyd was dealing with their label, we saw the launch of Virgin Records, which got a huge initial boost from artist Mike Oldfield and his hit Tubular Bells. Oldfield was only 19 years old when he wrote the epic rock symphony, which at 49 minutes had to be split onto two sides of a record. After the demo he recorded in his London flat somehow found its way into the hands of billionaire-to-be Richard Branson, Branson signed Oldfield to a recording contract and sent him to re-record a new version of the album in his newly established Manor Recording Studio, where Oldfield played nearly every instrument himself. The finished product would become the first release on Virgin Records and a critical and commercial smash, reaching number one in the UK album charts and remaining there for a record-shattering 280 weeks. Its fame was further cemented by director William Friedkin, who used the album's spooky opening piano theme for the soundtrack of The Exorcist. The success of Virgin Records set Branson up to create a business empire, including Virgin Mobile Telephone and Virgin Atlantic Airlines. Things were strained between Oldfield and Branson right from Jump Street. Branson and an engineer remixed Tubular Bells without Oldfield's permission. Oldfield could politely be called a recluse, but Branson knew they needed to capitalize on the song's success by having Oldfield perform it live. Branson even gave Oldfield his own Bentley if he would just get on stage. The Bentley, as it turned out, cost more in repairs than it would have cost Oldfield to buy one for himself. Branson also got considerably richer than Oldfield from Tubular Bells, as he was both the owner of the record label and Oldfield's manager. It took time for royalties to trickle into Oldfield at his below-industry-standard rate of 5%. The tax bill, on the other hand, came immediately. Rather than our usual assumption that instantly famous equals instantly rich— Oldfield was in debt more often than not, and counseled by an accountant to move overseas. His contract with Virgin Records was grueling, requiring 13 albums over the next 17 years. Lawyers were brought in, and the pair were joined in a legal struggle that dragged on for years, only narrowly avoiding ending up in court. In 1990, Oldfield released his second-to-last obligatory album, Amarok. He decided to get his own, as the Brits say, in a subtle way. The album was an hour-long, continuous stream of often discordant music—some might describe it as noise—essentially guaranteeing it is unplayable on the radio. Buried 48 minutes in, the rhythmic cacophony is overlaid by staccato screeches. Though it would fail to grab the ear of the average person, Boy Scouts and Old Sailors would recognize it as Morse code. What were the words? Well, let's just say the first word was the acronym for unlawful carnal knowledge, which, side note, is not where that word comes from, and you can bet your sweet bippy that I'll do a Patreon about that one of these days. And the next word was the word off, followed by the initials R.B., This was certainly not the sequel to Tubular Bells that the record execs have been pushing for all those years. Oldfield would eventually record that after he signed on with Warner Brothers. Things did seem to get a little bit better between Oldfield and Branson. They've been able to share the occasional amicable meal, and Oldfield gets free flights on Virgin Atlantic, though they don't fly to where he lives in the Bahamas, so he rarely gets to use them. Mike Oldfield is far from the only artist to produce a deliberately unusable album to fulfill a contract. Quality is subjective, of course, particularly in a form of artistic expression like music, so it's impossible to bake a requirement like that into a contract. Here's the rundown, but by no means exhaustive list, of albums recorded for the sole and exclusive purpose of fulfilling a contract. There's one item of note I can only mention in passing, the Rolling Stones track Schoolboy Blues, which may require you to turn Google Safe Search off to even find the lyrics. Even if you don't know the artist's name, almost anyone who's heard a classic rock station has happily sung along to Brown-Eyed Girl by Van Morrison. After a pretty unhappy couple of years with the label Bang Records in the mid-60s, Van Morrison wanted out. Lucky for him, Warner Music stepped in and bought out his deal with Bang Records. Unluckily, however, there was still one small contractual detail. Morrison was obligated to record exactly 36 songs for his old label, a label that would continue to earn royalties off of anything he released in the first year after leaving. Not a patient man at the best of times— Van Morrison did the only thing he could think of. He recorded more than 30 songs in a single recording session on an out of tune guitar about subjects as diverse as ringworm, blowing your nose, some dumb guy named George, and whether he wanted to eat a Danish or a sandwich. Bang Records concluded that the songs were somewhat below the artist's regular quality, you think? and deemed the bizarre collection unfit for release. The tracks did eventually see the light of day in the mid-90s, and remained some of the weirdest, but still really enjoyable music ever recorded by a mainstream artist. In a Frank Zappa sort of way. Speaking of whom, in early 1977, Frank Zappa wanted out of his deal with Warner Brothers and recorded Lather, an eight-sided, three-hour, quadruple album of all brand-new material. He was told he needed to deliver four separate albums to fulfill his contract, however. So he reformatted this giant album into the four required albums. Warner wasn't having it, though, and still wouldn't release the records. They not only refused to let Zappa out of his contract, they also wouldn't pay him for what he had done. In the pre-internet age, Zappa did the only thing he could do. He took one of the test pressings to KROQ in Los Angeles and played the whole set on the air as an exclusive. He also asked his fans to record the whole thing, thus giving them permission to bootleg it. Warner Brothers released some material from Lather in 1977 while they and Zappa were tied up in court and he wasn't recording. They eventually released the bulk of the album in 1996, three years after Zappa's death. Now, to say that Frank Zappa was prolific would be to damn with faint praise. Lather was his 65th album. Things were tense between Neil Young and Geffen Records, and David Geffen personally, as Young reached the end of his contract with them in 1986. Geffen had sued Young for $3.3 million, on the ground that Young's most recent records were non-commercial and musically uncharacteristic. Basically, David Geffen sued Neil Young for making albums that didn't sound enough like a Neil Young album. Landing on Water sounded like Neil Young all right, albeit a rather jaded and disillusioned version thereof. Several of the songs on the album were resurrected from Neil Young and Crazy Horse's failed 1984 sessions, a set of sessions where, according to longtime producer David Briggs, the musicians quote, played like monkeys. Young settled out of court with Geffen Records, but again, can't find the specifics. Before releasing his own required but unsellable albums, the Purple One himself, The artist formerly known and then, again, later known as Prince, changed his name to the famous unpronounceable gender-mixing squiggle hieroglyphic. It existed in no alphabet, occurred on no keyboard, and made marketing a nightmare. Prince also performed with the word slave written across his face, making it that much harder for Warner Brothers to market him, in hopes of being more trouble than he was worth he began churning out albums at a prodigious rate. The last album of his contract, Chaos and Disorder, was a collection of dodgy leftovers and tracks otherwise unsuitable for a proper album. The first album he released with his new label, EMI, was right back up to his old standards. The title? Emancipation. Releasing a live album is a time-honored way to deliver on a contractual obligation. With his band The Experience having broken up in mid-1969, Jimi Hendrix put together a new band, the Band of Gypsies, in order to make this record and get it out as quickly as possible. But even though the motives were entirely pragmatic, the results were pretty amazing. Recorded over two nights at the Fillmore East in New York City, specifically New Year's Eve 1969, New Year's Day 1970, the album finds Hendrix at his incendiary best, The band went their separate ways only a few weeks later, and barely six months after that, Hendrix would be dead. For much of the 1990s, British goth punk band The Sisters of Mercy battled viciously with their record label East-West. There was a train wreck of a co-headlining tour with Public Enemy, the snap firing of a manager, and canceled distribution in the States. Trying to kill the last two albums that the sisters owed East-West, singer Andrew Eldritch sent the label Work From Another Project. Without even listening to it, the label said the new material would cover their obligation. What Eldritch sent them was some abysmal techno entitled ssv nsmabaaotwmodaacotiatw which is rumored to stand for Screw Shareholder Value, not so much a band as an opportunity to waste money on drugs and ammunition, courtesy of the idiots at Time Warner. East West never actually released the album, but bootlegs are pretty easy to come by. Marvin Gaye's album, Here My Dear, arose from a day in court, but not with his record label, with his now ex wife the legendary crooner and his missus, Anna Gordy, had become estranged. Marvin's remarkable cocaine habit and extravagant lifestyle meant that he couldn't afford to pay her alimony. Therefore, a deal was reached. Half of the royalties of Gay's next album would go to Anna. As you might imagine, Gay didn't really fancy making another masterpiece like What's Going On. Instead, he hoped to turn in some barely passable rubbish, or, in his own words, lazy, bad. Of course, you can never predict when genius will strike. Once Gay got going, he just couldn't help but make good music, writing one of the most beautifully candid and emotionally raw breakup albums ever. That having been said, Gay got his original wish when the album was released, and fans and critics gave it a collective meh, Every now and again, the double-edged sword of artist integrity pops up. Ben Folds, of the eponymous Five, signed a publishing contract that he later regretted. It required him to pen a very specific amount of songs each year, right down to the decimal point. The track One Down is one of a number of songs he dutifully churned out to meet that contract and details the struggle and silliness of being party to such a legally binding document. The lyrics directly address the ridiculous situation of having to write .6 of a song, as well as the temptation to give his publishing company something just a little bit terrible. With not a little irony, he sings, One down and 3.6 tomorrow and I'm out of here. People tell me, Ben, just make up junk and turn it in. But I could never quite bring myself to write a bunch of shit. Not all contract fulfillers are of poor quality. David Bowie thought his contract with RCA would expire with the album Lodger, the third album in what is called the Berlin Trilogy. He was counting the double live album stage as two records. RCA, however, was having none of that and demanded another album to fulfill Bowie's obligation. The result was arguably his last great studio album, Scary Monsters and Super Creeps. The advanced single Ashes to Ashes, which resurrected his popular Major Tom character from Space Oddity, went to number one in the UK, while performing fairly strongly in a number of countries. In the US, however, the song saw a different fate, not even cracking the Billboard Hot 100. Fashion, a direct descendant, from Station to Station's golden years, followed in short order pushing scary monsters to the top of the UK charts, and Bowie managed to reach number 12 in America. For many fans, you need say no more than Ashes to Ashes to remind them of Bowie's creative genius. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So, who is so vain they probably think that song is about them? Well, Carly Simon won't say. She never has. Though she has alluded that Warren Beatty would have reason to think that the song was about him, which isn't exactly the same thing. There is one person who knows. Simon sold the name in a charity auction. It was bought by NBC Sports Chairman Dick Ebersol for $50,000, but came with the proviso that he... Must never reveal the name to anyone, and also included a private performance by Simon over a lunch of peanut butter jelly sandwiches and vodka on the rocks. Now, normally, this is where I say you can find all of the sources at yourbrainonfacts.com, but as you may have noticed, I've been refreshing stuff from the bottom of the catalog from back before I kept really good bibliographies, so sorry about that, and if you hear any facts that you think are incorrect, by all means get at me about it. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.